Welcome to the Simple Self-Care Podcast, your weekly nudge to take good care. I'm your host, Randy Kay. So today's podcast is a special one indeed. It's a conversation about probably the most important thing on the planet, maybe even the universe, and that thing is love. I recently got to chat with Dr. Jacqueline Bussey, an award-winning author, theologian, public speaker, and professor at Concordia College up here in my neck of the woods, Moorhead, Minnesota. In her most recent book, Love Without Limits, she writes about what it means to truly love and be loved and how to learn how to love across differences. Though Jacqueline writes about love from a Christian perspective, she provides a very important view of love no matter what you believe. Now, this is a belief-neutral podcast, and I don't subscribe to or personally promote any particular belief. But the reason I felt so comfortable talking about love and spirituality with her on this platform is because I feel like her message is at the core of what most religions and spiritual practices are about, and that's love. Being your best self, seeing through superficial filters and holding space for true connection and community, finding peace and common ground in a very divided world. And being able to live your own belief freely and authentically, but also being able to commune and relate to those that are different from you. And that is more important than ever. So take a listen as we hear about Jacqueline's personal journey of cultivating this love within, how to deal with religious and political differences with those that you love. (laughs) That's a big one and how to create your own loving, supportive community, and how to move forward when you feel like your purpose and mission is being destroyed. And one of my favorite parts of our conversation is when she shares her experience with getting fired from her publisher while writing Love Without Limits because of her stories of her Muslim and LGBTQ loved ones in her community. And how her book ended up coming to be is an incredible tale full of really powerful lessons for all of us. Okay, here we go. Enjoy. So yeah, so I'm Jacqueline Bussey, and I teach religion at Concordia, and I am the co-chair of our Interfaith Studies program. And I also run Concordia's Interfaith Peace Building Center, which is called the Forum on Faith and Life. And That's my day-to-day work. I teach classes. I get to know students. I get to do a lot of traveling and and speaking on interfaith peace building. And I also get to write books uh, in my free time. (laughs) Whenever that is. Whenever that is, which is not very often, but it's also very fun. Yeah. So you've written two books. Yes. Well, technically three, Yeah. two that are for a mainstream audience. Yeah. Okay. What's the third one? The third one is my first book, which mm-hmm. is a very academic book. It's called mm-hmm. The Laughter of the Oppressed. And it's on uh, laughter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was actually really fun to write as well, but very different genre of writing. So those are for the like hardcore bussy fans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Those are for hardcore academics. Uh-huh. Right? Like the others are for anyone. Yeah. That's a really interesting topic, though. Do you think that you'll ever make a mainstream book with that topic? 
You know, I'd kind of like to, Randy. I mean, I've given a lot of talks on the book that, of mm-hmm. course, are just for, for you know general folks. And I've really loved talking about that mm-hmm. because it is something that everyone can connect to. The book is about that. My very first book from 2007 is about laughter as a form of resistance, of ethical and theological uh, resistance to to forms of oppression. So, yeah, I look at uh, slave laughter. I look at the laughter of Japanese Christians when they were uh, suffering persecution in Japan and and death for for being Christian. And I also look at Holocaust survivors. Wow. Yeah. This is good stuff. So it was already interfaith. You can see that I was already (laughs) interfaith, like in the early (laughs) days of my career, but Mm -hmm. now it's become more, you know, more pronounced. So speaking of your early days, how did you get involved in interfaith? Why is it such a big passion for you? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a big passion because of, I think, the time that I got my PhD. So I got my PhD and September 11th had just happened. And at that time, you know, I was studying just theology and ethics and religion and culture. And I thought that was all I was going to do. And then, you know, I was teaching, of course, as as a way to um, help pay for my degree. I was teaching and I saw all of this what I want to say, backlash, particularly against Muslims after September 11th in my classroom. And I was like, wow, you know, I don't know about Islam. My students were asking me all these questions, you know, what's really going on in Islam. And I thought, I'm going to have to learn this. You know, this is something that I'm going to have to teach because it really scared me, the amount of, quite frankly, hate or at least hateful words that I was hearing about our Muslim brothers and sisters. And I thought, well, I've got to do something. You know, I can't just continue on the same path. Mm-hmm. So those words were not matching your personal experience with the people that you knew. They weren't. You know, yeah. I even had uh, a Muslim professor, you know, in my program, my religion program at the University of Virginia. And he was just one of the most peaceable people I'd ever known. You know, I didn't know him that well, but I, I got to know him better, you know, after all of this happened. And I just thought, I just have to help counter that. I have to help stop hate in a religion classroom. That, that seems like at least help stop misassumptions that we might have about one another. And that cuts both ways. People have mistaken impressions about Christians, you know, and when people learn that I am one, they think a lot of things about me that aren't necessarily true. So I just broaden my scope of what it would mean to be a religion professor in this day and age. So how did you go about changing that conversation in the classroom? Yeah, well, that was not too hard because I just started bringing in people who of different faiths. So I would bring in my friend who was a Sikh. I would bring in my friend who was Muslim. And I was like, no questions are off limits, people. Mm-hmm. You know, because my friends are really cool. And they would say to my students, now's your chance. You can ask me anything. And my these are the early stages of my teaching now that, that I'm talking about. And I remember my uh, Muslim friend came to my classroom it was maybe 2005, you know, September 11th was very fresh in people's minds. And people asked him, one of my students raised their hand, they said, what do you think about September 11th and what happened? You know, and he go, he looked straight at everybody. Nobody's ever forgotten this uh, from the class. He said, you know, those planes were not the only thing that was hijacked on September 11th. My faith was hijacked as well. And I still... And, you know, friends with some of the students from that year. And they were like, I'll never forget when he said that. The way that people can take a certain tradition and they distort it, they pervert it. And then everybody thinks, oh, that's what that whole tradition is. 
that is not okay. <laughs> so for people that aren't in a classroom or have that kind of opportunity, how would one go about familiarizing themselves with people of different faiths or in especially when it is very fear-based. And so there might be a person out there that wants to connect but is afraid because of what they've heard. Mm -hmm. So how can we start to, I don't know, bridge that gap or approach something that's scary for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's very compassionate. And I think we should see that that is very scary for people on all sides, you know? Well, I should also say that one of the other things... um, that happens is there's actually a lot of interfaith community events in most communities. And so I don't just bring people into my classroom. We also go out. And so those are opportunities that are presented to, to everyone. For example, right here in Fargo-Moorhead, where we are, there is, I think it's actually this week, every month, there's an international potluck. And that is an interfaith community event because there are people from all over the world and our community. And I love going to that. I take students to that. We went last month. And that is an informal opportunity to eat food. Everybody wants to eat food, you know, like you just have dinner. And you get to talk to the people at your table. And I remember just last time, you know, someone at my table sitting next to someone who was from Haiti, sitting next to somebody who was from Nepal. We were all at one table right here in Fargo-Moorhead. And we aren't the most diverse of cities in the United States. So if those opportunities are presented to us, those opportunities are everywhere. I have never been to a mosque that wasn't having community events. You know, they're saying, you know, meet your Muslim neighbor kind of events. My office hosts those, but so does our mosque. Our mosque has had open houses, like three open houses just in the past couple of years. And over 400 people went to that. So those are really good opportunities that we can do. Also, I think we all work with somebody who maybe doesn't have the same religious identity that we do. We can be that person who's like, can I take you to coffee? I'd love to hear your story. That's all you have to say, you know, and and certainly some of their their religion or non-religious tradition will come out in that conversation. So I think that interfaith peace building is just about friendships. I think that's where it starts. That's how people's lives and hearts are changed. If you look even at the social scientific research about how people's views change about a tradition, it's that they had a friend who was of that faith. And the research shows if I have one friend, for example, one friend who's Hindu, my entire view of Hinduism changes. And the research also shows that not only that, my entire view of other faith traditions also becomes more nuanced. I don't think that everybody thinks the same, for example, in that tradition. So it's important to have friendship. Yeah, I I love that food can be a good uniter, you it know. Is. Yeah, <laughs> I just love food. I yeah. just love food too, and right. I, there's been times where I'm like, I want to learn a Moroccan dish or something, and so connecting with in that way, like I think the potluck's a brilliant idea because it's like, well, let's we all love food. Let's learn that. Start there as like a cultural gateway, and then you can go into more deeper topics if you want to. Um, I remember I went to Morocco. I was doing a study abroad in Spain. So I went down to Morocco and I remember thinking like, my goal here is to just understand, you know, I've never been anywhere so foreign before and it really did feel like a different world, like for the first time ever. And I was there during Ramadan. Oh my goodness. It was just like here's our culture, right? you know, to it. and I had a friend teaching English there and she was just like, 
yeah, it's crazy because um, she grew up in Utah and um, so she and Mormon. And so she was there as a Mormon. And she's like, it was crazy to have them say to me things that I would say to other people to try to convert them. Like, I'll pray for you. Right. And, right. you know, yeah. this is the one true church and like right. all these things. And she was just like, yeah, after that, I, I was just like, okay, I am definitely an outsider, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. So it was interesting. And then like going there and going to the hummums and like the bathhouses. And it was just like, I mean, I'm a travel junkie as well. So it's like anytime I have a chance to really like get in with a culture, I try to. But, um, but like you said, here in Fargo, I was getting coffee with my dad and there were these two guys next to us speaking a different language, like from the right. Middle East. And I was like, yeah, this is so cool. Like we're in Fargo and we're hearing different languages. Right, and right. he's like, you know, Randy, not everybody gets excited when they hear that. And I was just like, ah. I, know, <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> I wish they would. I know. Exactly. So it is, uh, yeah, it is interesting. But I have had moments too, just where I have been afraid, where I have held back, or there are things in Fargo going on, but I'm in my own bubble. And so it's good to be reminded that there are people here that really need our friendship and and we need them, Absolutely. you know? We do. So mm-hmm. that's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> my students and I, we actually go, I teach a class at Concordia College called Compassion and Hope, Interfaith Perspectives. And we actually go out and serve with the new American community of Fargo-Moorhead every week, you know, every week. And it's, it, it, it changes us. It transforms us, those friendships that we forge through that. And, and some of those friendships that I have gotten through that experience actually show up in my new book. Yeah. So speaking of your new book, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of. it's a great segue. Okay. Um, yes. Love Without Limits. Yeah. So this has a bit of a cool story behind I think it's cool as an outsider there's many more emotions involved (laughs) um but so the gist of it was you had written a previous book Mm -hmm. called Christian Outlaw and Outlaw Christian Outlaw Christian thank you and (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and that went over well so your publisher's like let's do another one but then you started telling these stories of you know um a gay couple adopting and your Muslim friends and they were like, Nope, sorry. <laughs> and so Yep. So so then what happened? Okay. That <laughs> that that's pretty much how it happened though though I should say that the publisher had signed off on the proposal in which I said I would have a chapter that talked about and these are the exact words I used in the proposal, transgressive friendships between Christians and Muslims. Right. I mean, they my publisher knows, knew that I ran an interface center. And so obviously I was going to talk about these issues. So that was really hard because they had agreed to that. Right. That was. And so the title of the book, Love Without Limits, Jesus's Radical Vision for Love with No Exceptions. They came up with that. That whole title was them. So. You know, just I think that needs to be said. So what happened was they said I would need to delete those stories that you just mentioned, Randy. So they said that these very specific stories have to go. And I'm like, well, which ones? And they said, well, we've taken the liberty of rewriting it for you. 
by the way, is not the way book editing goes. I mean, I've written three books and you write things in the margin. You know, the editor says you need to work on this uh, section. The argument's not good here. This doesn't make sense. And then then the author, you know, has the autonomy to rewrite it and work on that in collaboration with the editor. This was not that. This had no, I'd never experienced this before in publishing three books. There was no uh, back and forth. There was no track changes. I couldn't even see exactly what they had done. They just rewrote it and sent it to me with those stories deleted. Yeah. And it was so terrible and you know traumatic because what they did was when they cut them, Randy, they uh, made the chapters so short, the two chapters that were on those topics of certain friends, that then they, the chapters wouldn't stand up because they weren't long enough. They cut 4,000 words from a manuscript that's only about 59,000, right? So that's a, that's a chapter, right? And when they cut it, they had to retitle the chapter because the chapters were named after my friends. Because I was telling these humanizing stories about these amazing people who helped me to love bigger and better. And they renamed the chapter. This was where it ended for me. I opened the, the thing. I opened the document and with their rewritten version of what I had to cut. And they named the chapter Others. All capital oh. letters. Others. I start crying. It's funny now, right? But at the time, oh. I start sobbing. No, right? I'm chuckling only because, because like, it's unheard of. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I start crying and I call and my husband comes running and he's like, what's wrong? And I said, I pushed the laptop with that document open over to him just to see that first page. And, he, and I said, honey, you know, there's only one choice, right? And he goes, there's only one choice. And by that, I meant I'm going to tell him I'm not going to change it. So my agent told them we were not going to make the changes. We wrote up a piece explaining why, of course. And then uh, we sent that to them. And four days later, they fired me on Memorial Day weekend on a holiday. The vice president wrote to me on the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend, 2017, and said, your contract is terminated. Oh, and guess what? We paid you an annual salary to write this while I was on leave from Concordia. I received an annual salary from that publisher. And they said, you owe us all the money back that we paid you to write it because we own the rights to the book because we paid for it. And of course, that was devastating uh, because obviously I didn't have the money. We lived off of the money. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't pay them back. So I lost the rights to the book. I lost the book itself. And I felt like I'd lost a year of my life. And I also felt like I'd lost a certain amount of my dignity. You know, it was a very shaming experience. They were like, why don't you just make these changes? You know, why don't you, I'm just, you can say, they said at one point, you can say these things, Jacqueline, you can, it's okay that you believe these things, but you could just publish those in your blog and like not in your book. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it was a very uh, ugly time, you know, in my life, because I felt that I was being asked to compromise my integrity Mm -hmm. by them. I felt like I was being asked to delete my friends and delete people that I loved and delete stories that were sacred to me and to my friends and that I was a steward of. And so obviously that that's, you know, that's what happened. So it just really sucked. (laughs) Well, it didn't stop there because we have the book now. Exactly. Which is great. Um, so I remember seeing this post on Facebook, you Mm -hmm. had put duct tape across your mouth saying censored. 
and told the story and it just blew up um much to your surprise it's to my shock yeah <laughs> if i had known that was going to happen i would have done it much sooner <laughs> right. right i wouldn't have suffered all summer like in my silent depression right which was what happened randy yeah mm-hmm. until so the day that i did that post so that that post was actually several months after memorial day that was in in late july Mm-hmm. of that same summer, which proves that I had no idea that posting that would change any outcomes because uh, I didn't do it. What prompted that was a dear friend who lives right here in uh, Fargo. And I was talking to her about what had happened and, you know, telling the story every time I told it back then, because it had no happy ending, I would cry. You know, it felt very traumatizing to tell it. And it just was this long story and it was shameful. And I thought I might be in trouble with Concordia because you're not allowed to go on leave and not produce something. Mm -hmm. So my proposal to my publisher was the same at Concordia. I'd said there will be a book published on this and I'm the director of the Forum on Faith and Life and I write on Faith and Life. That's part of my job, Randy. Mm -hmm. So I was really scared to tell Concordia too, you know, that then nothing would look as if nothing had been done in a year's leave. So I was so depressed, you know, I was not in a good place. Like, and, and I just didn't know what to do, quite frankly. And I was talking to that one friend, the friend I just mentioned in Fargo and this one day, and you know how like sometimes somebody says something and it's that one thing that like pierces through to your soul all of a sudden, and you can't explain why, but it was. So she, that one day she said to me, she goes, you know, Jacqueline, I believe that they just want you to shut up and disappear, the publisher. And she said, and you have given them exactly what they wanted. And I was like, oh my gosh, she is completely right when I thought about it. And you know what? The other thing I thought was, that's not my personality at all. I am extremely feisty when need be, you know, <laughs> which isn't very often. You don't mm-hmm. often get backed into a corner in this way. And then I thought, that is it. And that's the day I walked home. I took out the duct tape and I said, I, I said to my husband, I, I'm going to create an image that captures for my friends how I feel on the inside. And I look horrible in this photo. Like I smacked that tape on, like I had not you know, really slept a good night's sleep in two months. I looked exhausted. I look like I'm about to cry because I am. You know, it's this close up, like ugly. It's the ugliest selfie of me I've ever taken. So go figure that that's what goes viral. Right. right? That's what you get. <laughs> the only thing that you're like, that is such an ugly picture. But I don't think it's ugly well, for the thank record. You. But it's honest. But you <laughs> yeah. know what I liked about it was I was like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how I feel. Mm. I feel that bad. And I wrote a little post to go with it. And the post just told the story. I don't name the publisher. I never name the publisher. I'm not interested in doing that and demonizing them. This isn't just about them at all. And so I did this post and yeah, it goes viral. That's the cool ending, right? Because when the post went viral, people started, people that I did not know. Okay. So somebody said in 10 minutes, they said, we make the post public. So I did that. And then I basically went offline because I was like, I'm exhausted. I'm going to go take a nap. And I felt this catharsis of having written it and told the truth. And people started tagging the CEOs of other presses, total strangers. So this woman named Mary, I am excited to meet her. I have a speaking gig on the book in California coming up. That's where she lives. So we can thank this woman named Mary that I've never met. Even still, she tagged the CEO of Fortress Press. 
And Fortress was like, we're really interested in that. And so they tried writing to me, but they're not my friends on Facebook. So it went into this weird file that I never Mm -hmm. even saw until way later. But in a second, amazing coincidence, the senior acquisitions editor of that same press, Fortress Press, which is based in Minneapolis, was 900 miles from his house in Nashville, Tennessee, on a panel for a writer's uh, writers conference. And he was talking about, it was Christian publishing, you know, Christian publishing writers conference. And this acquisitions editor was seated right next to my agent (laughs) on the very day that I did that post. And they hadn't seen each other in like five years. Mm -hmm. And so my face appears on this editor's phone with this post, like on a reshare of a reshare. And he turns to my agent and is like, hey, and like shows his phone. It's like, do you know Jacqueline Bussey? Do you know who her agent is by any chance? <laughs> and my agent was like, okay, I'm her agent. And what the heck is that picture? Like, he was like really not happy with me. Yeah. I did not have any expectation that that would ever be viral. Like anyone right. would really ever see it. That was just for my friends, you know. So anyway, so they made an offer. They and So he sends them the book. They all read the book in like, you know, or enough of the book within 24 hours they make an offer that was, you know, close to about 60% of my original advance. So they really helped me get out of that hole and made it completely possible for us to pay back, uh, pay back the original publisher and buy the rights back to the book. Wow. That's what we did. That's amazing. Yeah. It was so beautiful. (laughs) I'm so grateful to them for Uh that. But mostly I'm grateful to my Facebook squad and I'm Mm -hmm. grateful to social media for proving that it can be used for good. Right. Because sometimes it's not. Yeah. You know, but this is an example of like amazingness, Mm -hmm. you know, changing outcomes for the better. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm so grateful. Well, and it's a great example of when the work needs to be in the world, it will be in the world. You know, and a lot of things are bigger than us and we get to be the vessel for it, you know, Um, but I feel like, but you acted on that nudge, you know, Mm -hmm. you didn't have to do that. You didn't even want to really. really. (laughs) And, but you did. And that's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it, it might sound a little wooey, but like when you, there are messages that are meant to be here and that one was chosen for you mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. and I, so. I, I love that and I it get and so it was like you know it's gonna be here because the, what the those coincidences are just insane they're too big they're too big I really appreciate that mm-hmm. Randy. I appreciate your saying that because I did feel called to write it you know, mm-hmm. I think when you're a writer, it's very spiritual. You know, for mm-hmm. me, writing is prayer, really, yeah. in some ways. And it's reconnecting, you know, with what the universe or God, whatever you call that, mm-hmm. you know, I tend to call that God, but also the universe, you know, wants to be spoken. And I think there's messages that we need to hear. And I just consider myself a conduit as a writer. I, I uh, even had this You'll laugh. Talk about wooey. I am am such a writer's nerd. So I write down, you know, ideas from other authors and I I put them on little post-it notes on my wall when I was writing this book. Because, you know, you got to stay dedicated. I mean, nine months of just pure writing. It's so hard. You're all by yourself. And I struggled. So I put up these like prompts of notes on the wall that would like be motivating. And one that I put up, it comes, uh, it's not exactly her words, but the idea comes from the author, Julia Cameron. 
And she says that writers are straws. They're straws for what the universe needs to have said. So the universe speaks and you're just the straw. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is thirsty for a certain message and you can be the straw. So I had written on my wall, I worked on this project every day. In all capital letters, be the straw. <laughs> so I don't think it's wooey at all. Like I was trying to be the straw for like mm-hmm. a message of love across difference in a really divided time in our nation. I felt called to do that. And that's why I think I was crushed too, that then the message felt like I felt like it died, right? I thought, what? I really had felt a call to write that. And then I felt that it failed. But in fact, it was part of the message. It was. It was. (laughs) I mean, you just can't make this stuff up, can you? It's amazing. So when you were in those couple of months, what? Yeah. If you don't mind me asking. I don't. Go ahead. What did that mess with your faith or your relationship with, like you said, the project? Like, how Mm -hmm. did you kind of wrap your head around it or did or did you really not and you just kind of sat with it like what is being in that time like because I think we're all in that in certain times of our lives yes and we can't see what's coming next what what helped you in those times Mm -hmm. well I really appreciate that question and I have to answer it honestly before I can kind of say what helped yeah so (laughs) it was irreconcilable to me you know I could not reconcile that I had agreed with a major Christian publisher to write a book about love without limits, a book about love with no exceptions, and then be asked to make exceptions. I couldn't reconcile. And I liked those people. I should be very clear that I enjoyed working with them. Like until that point, um, they were very special people to me. You know, they were people who believed in me as an author. They were people who gave me a chance to publish that book. They were people who believed I had that book within me um, when I really didn't. And so that hurts, right? Because these are not people that I disrespect. Um, Even to this day, I'm very hurt by their decision and I'm very baffled by it. Uh, But they were people that um, I really appreciated working with. And in fact, they still appear you know, not by name, but in the acknowledgments of the book, because I wanted to say thank you, you know, for believing in me that this book was within me because they were the ones who were right. I didn't, I didn't want to do it at first. I was like, nah, I'm good. I've published two other books. You know, I don't need a third. I don't need to do this right away. And that was them. So, so I have to say that, that I felt a brokenness of relationship. I also felt as a person of faith, super depressed because I had really come to believe that I was a straw for something. And I felt like I'd given birth to death. That, that, and I told this story only one other time. And it was not, never recorded. Um, because it was kind of hard to talk about. So I really was giving up. Wendy. Like I, and I'm not proud of that. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that sometimes that's a place that we reach. You know? And we have to be honest about that. And on the day that my friend helped me and said those words, I was being brutally honest. Like I was crying and I was telling her this story, what I'm about to tell you, which was that this one day I just could not, I had to acknowledge in my soul that I felt like something had died. And 
I went to, there's a seminary that's kind of a uh, seminary, excuse me, cemetery. <laughs> oh, that was a Freudian slip. Uh, a cemetery that's in South Fargo. And it's not that far from my house, but I never go for walks there. I mean, it's far enough, you know, it's like a couple miles. And I walked there and my husband was really worried about me that day. And he was following me, um, came to look for me in the car, but I walked there on my own. And I was just walking through the cemetery. It was the only place at which I felt at home because I felt like something had died, you know, like something that I had given birth to. I know that sounds very dramatic, but when you are a writer, it's it's a lot like giving birth. A lot of my friends have given birth to children and books and they're like, it feels a lot the same. You know, there's a lot going on with you. You know, if you really take this seriously, that you're giving birth to something that the universe might need. And I walked in that cemetery and I cried and I walked for so long that they came up to my husband and they said, that that girl in the pink pants, she needs to leave. Like, we need to close. And like I left. I didn't get in the car with my husband. I just wanted to just walk home. And like, that was a moment at which I was losing hope. You know, like I had really lost it. And so I think the message there is you have to Remember that even when you feel completely powerless, there is a power that always remains, always, always remains, which is the power to tell the story of why you feel so awful, what was done to you, how it made you feel. That is never, ever taken from you. And I, I even though I teach that all the time, Randy, I, I'm embarrassed to admit I lost sight of it. I did not tell it. I bought into shame culture. I didn't tell what had happened. But in that moment, you'll notice where I have that breakthrough with a friend. I was telling her the truth. All of it. I was crying and sobbing. And she was like, they just want you to shut up and disappear. And you've done that. You can't do that. You know. And look at how that changed everything. So look at how solidarity and the love of other people can reach into that ugly place where we are walking in cemeteries, whether literally or figuratively. Pink pants. In our pink pants and be like, I am taking you out. You've got to go walk somewhere else. And that's not only what the cemetery owner said, you know, but it's what my friend did metaphorically. She was like, she, she reached down into that. You know, and she felt my pain. That was the other thing. She didn't trivialize it. She had tears in her eyes when she said that. You know, she was like, people say that to me too. You know, and they say that to her because she's a member, you know, of one of those communities that I told stories about in the book that I was asked to delete. And so that's very powerful, isn't it? Because she's saying to me, no, 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 you can't give up. You cannot give up. You know, like, I love you, you love me, and we've got to try to change this outcome. Very beautiful stuff. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I, I don't know if that's like, you know, part of the process, but it seems like a lot of times going to that cemetery, (laughs) you know, is like, is part of it. And if you Mm -hmm. don't allow yourself to go there it's almost going to be harder to get out. I feel like, like with my own journey with depression, which is like part of my life. Um, I find that when I embrace it and I go there, um, and like 
give it a hug, so to speak, that's when I can actually move on from it. Mm -hmm. And I've learned the value in those times because those can be our greatest teachers, you know, and, and we get to receive the hand that reaches in and pulls us back up, whether it is from ourselves or through a messenger, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but I just, I just think that's a powerful part of the journey. And it's hard to say that once you're out of it, like, or when you're out of it, you can be like, that was powerful. But in the moment you're like, swear words, you know, (laughs) what what in the world, you know, but, um, but I, I do believe in the power of, of your experience and, um, that it has led to really what the book is about the essence of it. You know, you kind of got to go through the refiner's fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you'll be able to hold a much different space now in discussions about it. You know, mm-hmm. this, even this conversation is mm-hmm. going to be more relatable than if you wouldn't have had this experience, you know, about the book. So completely true. Yeah. Yeah. So good for you oh. for doing it. Well, thank you. <laughs> you say yes to the journey, you know, yeah, you know, I relate it to just the healing journey in general, whatever you're going through is like, you say yes to it and you have to be really careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. then you're going to get it. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's so true. Like if you wish to be a straw, you might be a straw in a way that you never planned. <laughs> right. Exactly. And if I can just say one cool thing about your podcast, mm-hmm. Randy, that I really appreciate about you and about um, the podcast in general is the deep honesty and authenticity with which you do speak about mm-hmm. your own journey of uh, depression mm-hmm. and mental health. And it's one of the things that's always drawn me to it and why mm-hmm. like, I'm a subscriber to, yeah. to it because, because I, too, am mm-hmm. someone who struggled with that. And I am drawn then to people who are authentic Mm -hmm. about that in their own life. Because otherwise, if we buy into shame culture, once again, you know, about depression and mental health and maybe that we need medication for that or maybe Mm -hmm. that we go to talk therapy for that, um, all of which I've done. Right. Right. Me you too. Know? Exactly. Right. And I think me too. Yeah. That's, that's part of our hashtag me too when right. it comes to mental health. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of me too's that are really important, mm-hmm. but we can't have those me too or I'm not alone moments unless people like you, right, have these kind of podcasts, initiate these kind of conversations where people can be honest about that. Mm-hmm. So. I just want, this is a shout out to you. And now I just want to say how much I appreciate that. Thank you. Because there's not enough spaces in our culture for those Mm -hmm. conversations to happen. The shame still is there. Yeah. Well, and it, I shared this in the first episode of this season of podcasts of like, even the term self-care is, Mm -hmm. is getting challenging because I feel like it is. Um, more superficial, but really, yeah. yeah. yeah, I that. yeah. <laughs> so it's like I'm kind of having an identity crisis with it, but, yeah, yeah. but, but it that's really I feel like what like how healing happens is when you can. This is what it is, you know. These kinds of conversations is really what it is, and we're all 
dealing with it. We all deal with such hard emotions. And yeah, we can talk about our favorite acts of self-care, which are really great gateways to ourselves. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, what is, what's the nitty gritty work that we're doing to actually feel differently, Mm -hmm. which is what coming back to your book is that like love and really being able to express it and receive it without these filters, without these limits, you can't heal without that. That's right. And, mm-hmm. you know, the core of the Christian faith is love, and yet it's <laughs> gotten a bit bonkers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to put it well, gotten a bit bonkers, yes. <laughs> and so I've, I've been on my own spiritual journey with how I feel about Christianity and everything mm-hmm. like that. And We've talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And reading your book was actually really comforting because it, it allowed the space for me to come back into the Christian framework mm-hmm. and to even think about Jesus in a different way um, and being like, oh, yeah, no, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, right. I can get on board with this. Yeah. And so yeah. I think I think just on that regard, there's so many people that want to still relate to Christianity but don't feel like they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and and your book does a really great job of providing that space. So mm-hmm. for people listening, it's not just for Christians and people who subscribe to like Christ and think it's like it's it's actually for everybody. You yes. know, and the principles are really true, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. So could you actually speak a little bit on um, on love in regards to um, people in our lives that think differently than us or yeah. difficult family situations? Because yes. I have a lot of people that have been like, yeah, I'm dreading Thanksgiving because oh, we got it. <laughs> It's like all so, my students. Yeah, yes, yeah. So exactly. you talk about this in your book, which I was, I think, a very important thing to touch on here, just of, especially when we go into the holidays and things, like mm-hmm. how can we practice love without limits when when it's really hard? Uh-huh. <laughs> which is always. <laughs> truth, truth. Yeah, truth. And, and, and I'm speaking in the book, too, as you may know, as somebody who's family is very broken, you know, over these issues. And I say in the book that I'm a a sock that's been put in with the sweaters, you know, like (laughs) the laundry gets sorted. Some people end up in the wrong drawer. And I am definitely that with my family. Like I have very different views uh, than literally every single member of my family, Um, particularly on my Muslim friends and LGBTQ matters and and just who I see Jesus to be really, um, quite frankly. So yeah, I t- I do tell stories of epic fails of, of my own, of my own. I want to say that of love without limits in the book. I think it's important once again, you know, in our shame culture to talk about how we failed about that and then how we can grow. So I also talk about some really beautiful moments where I have discovered in my struggle to love people who are maybe hard to like. Right. Even if those are sometimes our family members. Right. And we have difference of opinion, difference of political opinion, religious opinion. I talk about the quest that I think we have to constantly be on to rediscover our shared humanity with that Mm -hmm. person. So lately, Randy, when so and so of my relatives begins talking about, for example, how all Muslims are terrorists, which Mm -hmm. is really not an uncommon uh, 
occurrence around my Thanksgiving table, <laughs> I try to use storytelling. You know, like I will often then just tell a story about like, okay, well, I hear what you're saying. And there's certainly a lot that goes on in the name of Islam in terror, right? These are real things. And then I also will just tell a story about a friend. But I also sometimes divert completely by saying to that person, I want you to tell me like why it's so important to you to say that. Why is it important that we all hear you on that Mm. point? And sometimes I'm surprised as I tell the book about the stories that people tell, because often it's something, somebody that who hurt them, right? Um, Often it's just complex, right? You know, so, so I go more now towards the, why does that matter to you so much? Or can you tell me a story about why you believe that? And, or if I can't do that, I'm like, hey, isn't this turkey delicious, <laughs> right? You know, like focus on something about that person that we have in common. And I don't care how small it is, whether we, you know, maybe we both like, you know, um, Aunt Jolene's gravy that she's made for the mashed potatoes. Like I got to find something. Like I go on the quest then of like, so tell me about your year so far. Or like, you know, what did you do, you know, last month that was your favorite thing, you know, like so that I can restore their humanity even in my own eyes. Because I start going to that demonizing place of like, oh my gosh, you're a terrible person for these things that you think. And of course, though, then I always remember, huh. So how are my views changed on my Muslim neighbors? How are my views changed on LGBTQ, right? How did I come to, to embrace my gay friends in a way that I didn't? And I, the answer was, is Randy, I did not have a change of heart because someone screamed at me over the dinner table that I was the dumbest person they ever knew. <laughs> I didn't change my heart because somebody on Twitter was like, you are so stupid. Like, this is not how people's hearts become open. People's hearts become open because they're cracked open by a story that you told that was so beautiful that it compelled them to at least have a nuanced story, right, about an entire group of folks. So once again, back to transgressive friendships and back to love. Love is the only thing that ever changed me. So why would I walk out into the world and try to use anything else, you know? And I also resolve that I'm going to love that person even if they don't change. That's also super important. And I, and I also remember people in my life who did that for me, who were very <laughs> committed to me when I was really not very nice, you know, mm-hmm. on a lot of views. And I tell all those stories in the book. Mm-hmm. Thank God people hanged in there, you know, yeah. with me and still loved me through all, through all of that. So it's powerful. I also love how you talk about the concept of family and yeah. how maybe when your biological family, you have your moments, you do your best, you continue to love, but that doesn't mean they have to be all that your family is. No. And what's that quote by uh, your husband in the book? Family is the door you walk through. The room you walk into, yeah. not the room you're born into. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love when he says that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, this is really big for me because I do have such a uh, divided family and because um, I have a lot of friends whose family has maybe no longer speaks to them or treats them in a less than wonderful way because of their sexuality or because of their religion. And so this was very, cuts very close to the bone, you know, for me um, as someone who has been rejected by a lot of my family members. 
course, you know, not for sexuality, but but certainly for my religious views, my political views, um, my friends, those kind of things. And if you've experienced that, this book is for you, whether you're Christian or not, because I do find some really valuable wisdom in that from other people about who your family really is. You know, and I call that family, like friends who become your family. (laughs) A lot of us really need that because our family has rejected or silenced or censored us. You know, they can't appreciate us right now, I Mm -hmm. like to say, in all of our gifts. And to those people, this book is for you because the book is saying, you know, you are loved without limits and don't believe anybody who tells you differently. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. And for a lot of us, it's our family not our family, biological family, I mean, who has taught us that. And I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just put, you know, I, I say in the book, love lines, not bloodlines matter most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and awesome. That's true. So we're getting towards the end of our time. <laughs> I see that. But um, I did want to touch on self-love because that's where you'll be able to give love authentically um so can you touch on how to cultivate that self-love or how to even kind of build that muscle of of learning how to love yourself and therefore loving people from a a less attached space or with an agenda I guess yeah this is a perfect last question I think Randy because it is a perfect place where our podcast your podcast and my book intersect, yeah. right? Because I have an entire chapter in the book on the importance of self-love because I think it gets lost. So my advice there would be sometimes we're taught to think about, oh, you know, the golden rule in every religion. There's, there's a version of the golden rule in every religion. And we sometimes think about that golden rule as like, oh, I really need to love others. You know, like the focus in my life has to be on loving others as much as I love myself. For some people, that's really good advice. You know, some of us really need to focus on that. But what I love about your podcast and what I'm trying to talk about in that particular chapter is that is really, really terrible advice for some people. To encourage selflessness in in certain people is deadly. And for the folks whose self-love is already on E, you know, already on empty, that is, that's, that battery is almost out, like, you know, and that's going to drain it to the point where it can't even start anymore. And that's terrible. So, so what I really want us to think about is the ways in which some people in our culture are taught to be less than. They're taught to think of themselves as not enough, right? Sometimes that's me, like as a woman, in, the, in this society today, right? Sometimes that might be somebody who's gay. Sometimes that might be somebody who's an atheist, you know, and they're not accepted by folks who are religious. I, I mean, I can't say who that person is. But what I do want to say is, for some people, pride is what we actually need to teach them. Now, in Christianity, there's this huge bias against pride. Pride is the greatest sin, you know. Mm-hmm. Big, big writers and Christians, who are mostly men, I would like to add, uh, males, white males, uh, argue that that pride is the greatest sin. You know, C.S. Lewis says that, and he's like sells more books 
than still today than like any other Christian. But I would argue and do that this is an extremely dangerous teaching for people who have been taught that they are not lovable, they are not enough, they are not good enough, they are not worthy of love. Those people, I meet those people all the time. Don't you? Mm-hmm. And to those people, I want to say again, I will help you. I will reach into that cemetery and help you find, <laughs> you know, your dignity. You know, I will give you your dignity. I will help hand it back to you because I know that you've been thieved of it. And there are many ways we can give that back to one another. And that's what self-care, I think, really is about in this day and age, is recognizing some people do not have enough self-love. And we can help them. Mm-hmm. You know, we can help one another, I should say, because that's sometimes that's all of us at one point or another. Mm-hmm. Right? So we can do that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yes well thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and your words and your feistiness (laughs) it's great it's been fun it's been a great time thank you Okay, so now you know why I love Jacqueline and wanted to have her on and why her message is so very important. And I do recommend her book, Love Without Limits. It's been getting all sorts of awards and high reviews from the likes of the Chicago Tribune and the Publisher's Weekly Review. And you can find all things Jacqueline on her website, JacquelineBussy.com. And a link to that will be available in the show notes. And you can purchase her books from most online realtors, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. But I would get on that because they they do sell it quickly. So I would love to hear what you thought about today's conversation. You can connect with all of us by taking a screenshot of your podcast player or a photo of you listening to this podcast and post it on Facebook or your Instagram story along with your thoughts and insights. And if you do that, be sure to tag me at naturally Randy K. That's naturally R-A-N-D-I-K-A-Y. So I can share it with the world. Or you can join my free Facebook group to compare notes with other listeners and to keep this conversation going. Just search Simple Self-Care Circle and join and leave a comment there with your thoughts. And if you'd like to get more updates from me and every latest podcast episode to your inbox, join my free newsletter over on my website at naturallyrandyk.com. And there you can also find the show notes under the podcast tab. And be sure to tune in next week as the self-care conversation continues. Until next time, take good care and enjoy the journey.